I'm going to be reading from verse 1 to 9. You can find the talk outline on page 8 of your program. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. To open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that faith, hope, and love will grow uh, more deep in each, one, each of us as uh, Peter brings us this word. Um, we pray for all of us that we will have listening ears and receptive hearts and that you will speak to each one of us individually where we're at and what it is we need to hear. Amen. I don't know how many of you are on Facebook. Uh, can I just assume that most people are? I mean, even Craig Tucker is, so... Yeah. And he's old, right? Facebook, Instagram, you know, like it, hate it, whatever. I'll tell you what I don't like about it. I really don't like inspirational memes, quotes. You know those pictures of flowers and, you know, lame platitudes? Anyway, I came across a website which I did like, and it was full of anti-inspirational quotes. So I'm going to show you some of these, because it made me happy. And I'm grumpy. No. Um, so instead of, you know, if at first you don't succeed, keep trying, how about this one? I'd love to see that on your Facebook feed sometimes. And instead of be yourself, don't change who you are for others, how about this one? Because quite frankly, it is true, isn't it, for a lot of people in your lives? Instead of the enjoy the good times and make the most of every day, well, I prefer this one. Because the glass is always half empty. And then, of course, this is my favorite coming up. Instead of the um, never give up, let's just, let's just change the punctuation a little and change it to this. Wouldn't that be great? Don't you wish, you can turn it off now, I don't need it anymore. Um, don't you wish, though, in addition to anti-inspirational quotes, I, I would love to see anti-inspirational Christian ministry quotes. Yeah? 
Are you with me? Who's with me? Two people are with me. Great. Okay. Because, you know, sometimes you do, I mean, if you've got a bunch of people in ministry and leadership and churches, and, you know, for every inspirational Bible verse or famous quote posted against a sunset picture or hands raised in worship, yeah, you know, for every status update about how awesome church was the day before, how your church is growing 300% every year, how your next church plant is going to transform the city, for every Instagram pic of a perfectly latte-arted coffee with your Bible opened next to it, hashtag WYMTM, what you missed this morning, for every one of those, I wish, and don't you too, that there were just as many anti-inspirational Christian ministry quotes. Yeah? Okay, I'm just alone because I'm a, the only grumpy person on a Monday. Monday's my day off. And I'm going to do this. I mean, I'm serious. <laughs> no, honestly, it's, it's a bit tongue-in-cheek, I know. But um, let, let's be real for a moment, brothers and sisters. Um, beyond what you show people, beyond what people see on your Facebook feed or whatever, isn't the reality of Christian leadership... Isn't it just plain hard sometimes, or maybe most of the time, isn't it? I'm talking to a room of uh, many pastors, many leaders, many planters or planters-to-be. Let me ask you, what are you actually like on a Sunday night after a long day at church? I mean, are your hearts full and is a new song on your lip every Sunday night? Okay, Sometimes that's the case with me, but I'll tell you, mostly not. Most Sundays, after a long day at church, I want to assume a fetal position on my bed, cuddle a blankie and suck my thumb. (laughs) Maybe that's you too. Let's face reality. We're talking about leadership this uh, conference. Christian leadership is hard. Ministry is difficult. Church planting. Are you insane? You guys getting assessed? You really want to do this? It is hard work. Well, good news though, friends, God is going to speak into these exact situations today and these next couple of days. And he's not going to do it by inspirational memes or even inspirational verses pulled out of context, but through a magnificent book, the book of Isaiah. You know, people said it's the Romans of the Old Testament and they wouldn't be wrong because we will meet in Isaiah like he did, the prophet did in the 8th century B.C., we will meet the incomparable sovereign God of history who is in control of all things for his glory and our good. And I hope to just give you a peek of that today and over the next couple of days. Let's pray and ask God to help us. Father, we pray that you would open our eyes, speak through me by your spirit, illuminate our hearts, help us to grab a vision, a big, big vision of you. And ultimately also, of your servant Jesus today. Amen. You can follow what I'm saying on the uh, talk outlines if you're a note-taking person. Go for it. Um, Just a bit of orientation. Isaiah 42 is in the second major section of the massive book of Isaiah. Second section is chapters 40 to 55, right? 40 to 55, and it's in that section. Now, the first section, essentially the first 39 chapters, is the, the main audience is the 8th century audience of Isaiah the prophet who lived in that time. Um, These are people, God's people, uh, Judah, particularly under pressure and under siege from the superpower of their day, Assyria. Then we come to section 2, chapters 40 to 55. Isaiah is casting ahead about 100 to 150 years. 
So the audience, I think, that, that he's directed to, and it's pretty obvious when you read these chapters, is now to God's people in exile, which they will be about 150 years later, in exile in Babylon. That's the section we're in. Uh, Isaiah 40, um, if you know Handel's Messiah, begins with comfort, comfort, O oh my people, right? It's a comfort word for the exiles after they had gone into exile in judgment. Um, the Lord is going to bring them back from Babylon like he did the Exodus. It's going to be a new Exodus. Now, as we come to Isaiah 42, it's, it's really helpful to keep those contextual historical things in mind because we're talking about a destroyed nation, aren't we? We're talking about an exiled people. We're talking about a kingless remnant. And to that group of people, what vision of hope is Isaiah going to present? And more importantly, what vision of God is Isaiah going to give us? Now, Isaiah 42 is going to answer three questions with this first of Isaiah's servant songs. And the three questions are the who, the what, and the how. So firstly, who? Who is God? Um, We're going to spend our time mostly in Isaiah 42, but you actually need to know that while it's a servant song and a lot of people throughout commentating history have kind of wanted to pull these four or possibly five servant songs on their own as if they had no contextual links, the truth is it actually makes much more sense to read 42 following on from 40 and particularly 41. There's a lot of um, linguistic and other thematic links with the chapter before. Right? It doesn't come out of the blue. And so we need to actually see uh, 41 briefly. So in Isaiah 41, without reading all those verses, we've got a dramatic dialogue, essentially, between three parties. You've got God, or Yahweh the Lord. You've got the nations, the foreign nations. And then you've got his people. Okay? God, the nations, and his people. And you can almost imagine this dialogue is taking place in that heavenly throne room. Uh, if you're familiar with Isaiah, Isaiah 6 Remember, Isaiah sees this vision of the Lord, high and mighty, seated on his throne room, and the train of his robe filling the temple. You can almost imagine it's happening there. Now, the dialogue, though, is mostly between the first two of the, the, the three I mentioned. It's between the Lord, Yahweh, and the foreign nations. But it's meant to be overheard by God's people. You got that? So it's particularly going to deal with who is God in relation to the nations And the people of God are supposed to overhear it because it's actually a message for them. Now, when we get to the end of chapter 41, just before our section of 42, the Lord turns his attention to particularly have a go at the useless idols of these nations. And he he says to them, essentially, verse 21, he'll say to them, 21, present your case, you idols. What can you do? What can you do? So if you've got your Bibles open, and please do, um, Chapter 41, verse 22, I'm going to pick up. I'm I'm reading the NIV. It says, tell us, you idols, what is going to happen. Tell us what the former things were, so that we may consider them and know their final outcome. Or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what the future holds, so we may know that you are gods. Do something, whether good or bad, so that we will be dismayed and filled with fear. I I love it when the... uh, Bible goes all sarcastic and, you know, um, that's what he's doing, right? He's, he's challenging the idols. Tell us, what, what, what can you do? Um, in verse th- and it keeps going. In verse 29, the chapter essentially ends with, see, they, these idols, are all false. That's the conclusion we come to. 
Now, this is not the only time that um, Isaiah has God rip into the idols. Uh, it actually started back in chapter 40. We won't look at that. Um, here is in chapter 41. It's going to a couple more chapters later on, 44, 46. Right? You, you, God is just going at the foreign idols. If you want a good summary, a good summary is chapter 40, um, verse 18 and verse 25. You've got this, um, the, the same question posed twice. And I think this is a good hook for us to hang this first question of who on. 40 verse 18 or 25, with whom will you compare God? Right? With whom will you compare God? And that's essentially the question raised when we get to chapter 42. And 42 has the answer. With whom will you compare God? So we come to 42. We read it earlier, but let's, um, let's go to verse 5. With whom will you compare God? This is what the God the Lord says, verse 5. The creator of the heavens, who stretches them out, who spreads out the earth with all that springs from it, who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk on it. Skip a few verses to verse 8. I am Yahweh. I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. See, the former things have taken place and new things I declare. Before they spring into being, I announce them to you. Right, You've got the answer, right? I mean, who can you compare God with? Well, you can't because he is the incomparable sovereign Lord of all history. Unlike idols, remember the challenge. What do you know? What can you do? Tell us about the future. No, God's not like that. He knows everything and he controls everything. So Isaiah 42 is about the servant, and we'll come to that. But I like to think of it like a piece of music. And here I just want to say, um, I'm not a musician, nor am I the son of a musician. I just sing karaoke. Um, I'm Asian. Come on. It's like part of my DNA. You can laugh at that joke. It's okay. Um, So think of a piece of music, but don't think symphonies because I would know nothing about them. I mean, think pop (laughs) or think contemporary worship songs, you know, the four chord type stuff. Um, You have, I'm told you have layers, right? You have essentially three layers. And um, if you like to think about it this way, at the bottom, the rhythmic bass notes, right? The anchor, the piece of music. Or I reckon this is it. This vision of God and who he is as the incomparable sovereign Lord of history is the bass line. Right, it's anchoring the piece of music. It's keeping it going. And we'll come to where the servant fits in later on in that metaphor. And the point is that whether we're talking about 8th century BC Judah surrounded by Assyria, or maybe later on in 7th century BC when they're surrounded by Babylon, or the 6th century BC when they're exiles now away from their land, or even later on, the returnees under King Cyrus. And I think that's the beauty of Isaiah. It speaks to all of those generations over hundreds of years. But no matter which generation you're looking at, what is the one thing that the readers of Isaiah needed to know? It's who their God is, isn't it? Why they can trust him. And that's why these base notes are here. Chapter 41, verse 10 says, So do not fear, for I am with you. What great words. Planters, ministers, pastors, leaders, if you're feeling discouraged, maybe this is a word for you today. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous 
right hand. That is who God is. Um, it doesn't just speak to Isaiah back then, does it? I mean, I mean Isaiah's audience. It speaks to our current context. Well, a lot of the um, workshops and seminars are going to be about how, quite frankly, the climate now in the West, in Australia, is pretty hostile to Christianity. And don't we need to remember, brothers and sisters, who is the sovereign Lord of history? I mean, if you're in New South Wales or Victoria, who is actually sovereignly in charge of groups like Firus? Right? Firus stands for Fairness in Religion in Schools. It's basically an atheistic group trying to drive religion out of schools. Who's sovereignly in control of the worst and most vehement part of the gay lobby? It's God. He is the sovereign Lord of all. That's the who question. Next, let's go to the what. What is he doing? Uh, Back to that music metaphor, right? Um, And if the music metaphor is completely off, please don't tell me about it later because it'll devastate me, okay? Because I thought long and hard about this one. Just just run with it, okay? Um, But if the bass notes are God's incomparable sovereignty, then I reckon the mid-layer of the music, the chords over which the melody will play, um, the chords, the mid-layer, that section is the theme of justice. It's answering the question, what is the incomparable God doing? The answer is justice. Now, we're going to hold off looking at this servant until the next point, the how. We're going to first look at what God is doing through the servant. And you won't miss it, will you? So let's have a look at these verses again. Verse 1, God says, Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him. And what will he do? He will bring justice to the nations. Skip a verse and a half, uh, halfway through verse 3. In faithfulness, he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his teaching, the islands will put their hope. Pretty obvious. The key word is justice. But it's not the narrow sense of the word justice in our English language, where often the opposite of justice in our thinking is like, the opposite of justice is inequality or, or unfairness, right? Uh, the Bible's word here, the Hebrew word is mishpat, and it's a, it's a broader word than that. Sometimes it's better translated as judgment. It's the same root where you get the word judges from, right? Samson, Gideon, those judges, it's from the same root where you get mishpat. And really, the, the, the biblical idea of mishpat, and I had to ask my um, Hebrew scholar, lecturer guy, friend, um, he is very helpful. He, he actually pointed out it's much more than just the absence of inequality amongst people. In fact, in Exodus 26, and this is surprising, in Exodus 26, it's, it's the word used to speak of the blueprint for the tabernacle. Right? So Mishpat carries with it the idea of how God created things to be. It's his blueprint for the good life. It's what makes for good society. So to exercise mishpat-type justice isn't just to remove inequality. That's part of it, but it's not all of it. It's to show up what that blueprint, what that pattern for society ought to be, and then to move people towards it as well. And that's why in verse 4, it's linked to the law or teaching, if you've got the NIV. But the word there is Torah, right? Law. To establish justice on the earth, God, through his servant, will bring his Torah, his law, his instruction, his teaching to light. And that's why also in verse 6, 
the result of the servant's ministry of justice will be like light in the darkness, giving sight to the blind. See, it's all linked to the idea of justice. It's not separate ideas. It's all part and parcel of mishpat. Verse 6, I will keep you and make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles, to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. All right? So that's the what. What is he doing? Now, finally, we're going to come to the how, the servant. And that's really the highlight of this servant song, isn't it? And, and if you like, you know where I'm going with the music metaphor. You've got the bass notes, incomparable sovereign God. You've got the midsection, justice. Then the melodic top notes that play is the servant. Now, this servant song is in the form of a presentation. If you read it all the way through, that's the form it's in. It's a little bit like the chairman of the board of the company introducing the new CEO of the company to the shareholders and say, hey, voila, here he is, okay, or here she is. Um, And in fact, that's what verse 1 starts with. It's not translated in most English versions, but it's the word behold or see, which is interesting because chapter 41, verse 29 When it talks about the idols, the conclusion about the idol bit is, behold, see, these idols are all false. So you've got a contrast there, right? Behold, the idols are false. Now behold, now see. Now I'd expect um, chapter 42 to be, the idols are false. Now see the Lord who is not false. But that's not what happens. The idols are false, but the Lord says, now see my servant. And he presents this figure. We only have time for a quick bio of the servant. So that's three points um, I want to say about it. Firstly, he's really special. He's really special to the Lord. Um, Verse one, you've got there, he's the one that the Lord upholds. Um, The word there means to hold fast, to grip tightly, like, you know, it's, I imagine it's, it's what I haven't done it to my, my sons because they're kind of little and I don't want to kill them. But, um, you know, when, when your, your son's like big and you just kind of grab hold of him, and you, I'm proud of your son, you know? That's the idea. Hold fast, grip tight. Um, and he's the Lord's chosen one in whom my soul delights, says the Lord. Right? That I can say about my sons. In other words, he's not just the Lord's man for the job. That's certainly the case. He's also the Lord's man for himself. He's really special for the Lord. Um, I imagine it's a, it's a little bit like if, if you're an Apple fan person, uh, which I am, um, you'll, know, you'll know Johnny Ive, right? You Apple people know Johnny Ive, the chief designer of Apple all those years. Johnny Ive to Steve Jobs. This is my illustration, and hopefully it's not going over too many heads. But Steve Jobs is the guy with the vision for Apple products. But Johnny Ive is the guy who Jobs entrusts to design and realize his vision to the world. So all those Apple products that you know well, everything from the original iPods to modern iPhones and those computers, it's Johnny Ive. He is not just Steve Jobs' man for the job, he is Steve Jobs' man for himself. Which is why in verse 1, when it comes to the servant, the Lord anoints him for the office by putting his own spirit on him. Yeah? Makes sense, doesn't it? So that's the first one. He's very special. Number two, he's characterized by gentleness and faithfulness. Uh, So verses two two to four. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. 
In faithfulness, he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. There's a, it's a bit of a word play there. Unfortunately, it's impossible to pick up in English. Um, but the, the, the word bruised is from the same original Hebrew root as the word discouraged in verse 4. So bruised in verse 3, same root as word play on discouraged verse 4. And the word smoldering in verse 3, smoldering wick, word play on falter in verse 4. Now, if you've completely missed that, don't worry about it because I'm going to give you a really bad translation to try and bring out the wordplay because it's not a valid translation. But if you wanted to really bring out the wordplay, read something like this. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. Verse 4, he will not be smoldered or be bruised till he establishes justice on earth. And you know why they wouldn't translate like that because it makes no sense. But, um, but the, the point is the servant in his gentle dealings with the weak... Right? And the bruised. He won't destroy them, snuff them out, crush them. What a beautiful picture of gentleness. Now, at the same time, as he deals gently with them, he won't give in to the very pressures that cause these same people that he's helping to be weak and bruised. Do you get what I mean? He's helping the weak and bruised, but at the same time, he's not going to give in to the same kind of things that causes them to be weak and bruised because he needs to be faithful and determined all the way to the end, not become bruised and smoldering so that he can carry out his mission. He is gentle and faithful. Thirdly, his ministry will bring salvation. We've already seen the servant's task is that justice idea, mishpat, in the broader sense of the word. God has appointed him to bring salvation, and salvation in the fullest sense, right? He will be a covenant for the people, a light for the Gentiles. I think people and Gentiles here are parallel. We're talking about non-Jewish people, right? He is the instrument through which passages like Isaiah 2, that vision of all nations streaming to Zion, He's the instrument through which that'll happen. He's the instrument through which the the, the magnificent end of Isaiah, 65, 66, new creation, all nations coming to... All of that comes true through this guy, through this servant figure. Verse 7, he is opening blind eyes. He is releasing prisoners. Again, if you know the call of Isaiah, remember um, Isaiah 6, when God calls Isaiah to ministry, he gives Isaiah a bummer of a job. He essentially says to Isaiah, you're going to preach, but they're going to be blind still. In fact, your preaching will confirm their blindness. But you see, the servant here is going to reverse all that now. Right? He's going to open the blind eyes. He's going to have success where Isaiah is going to have a you know, God-ordained failure. And the fulfillment of Isaiah 35, another really important passage in Isaiah, where, where it talks about the eyes of the blind open, but also the deaf will hear The lame will leap. The desert will become a paradise. And Zion, Jerusalem will be renewed. So this is all linked in with the servant's ministry once you see it as a part of the whole of Isaiah. That is the servant's ministry. Salvation in the fullest sense. So, who is this servant? And before you jump to conclusions, if you were just to read Isaiah, there are two possibilities that stand out in the immediate context of Isaiah 42. First possibility is 
the nation of Israel. Why do I say that? Well, the immediate context, remember chapter 41, in 41 verse 8, if you look there quickly, it says, but you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the same words being used of the servant in 42, servant, chosen, and it'll be again used of the nation of Israel in chapter 44 and chapter 45, we won't turn to them. So it could be the nation of Israel. Another candidate for the servant, if you were only to read Isaiah, is King Cyrus of Persia, surprisingly. I say that because in chapter 45, verse 1, when Cyrus is named, he is called the Lord's anointed, the Messiah. And it talks about God taking hold of Cyrus's right hand. It's the same verb as 42, verse 6, when it says to the servant, I will take hold of his hand. Because it's Cyrus who will decree the exile's return and the rebuilding of Jerusalem. So it could be Cyrus. And that's just from 42 servant song. If you were to read that servant from, from the other servant songs, which will come in the next few days, there are some other possibilities. Um, people have suggested it may be the, the historical remnants who ended up in exile, but were going to return. Or it could be King Hezekiah himself, who feature really largely in chapters 36 to 39. It could even be Isaiah himself or the little community around Isaiah. All these possibilities as to who the servant is if you were just to look at Isaiah. But you know what happens? When you consider all the options, I reckon it's a little bit like getting a bunch of keys to your friend's house or the holiday place you booked. And the keys have like no labels. Have you been in that situation? And so you stick the keys in the door. A lot of them don't fit, but there's some fit, yeah? But it doesn't turn. Right? And you think, oh, this is the key, but it's not the key. And I reckon it's like that with the identity of the servant, if you're just to look within Isaiah. So those two big ones I suggested, that it can't be the nation of Israel. I mean, the key fits, but the door is not turning. The, the lock is not turning. It can't just be the nation of Israel or the surviving remnant. And I'll tell you why. Because later on in chapter 42, verse 19, same chapter, but later on, um, servant Israel is accused of being blind and deaf. In not a good way. So they can't possibly be the source of other people's sight if they themselves are blind, right? And it can't be Cyrus either. Again, the key fits somewhat, but it's not going to turn the lock because though he's anointed by God and he brings about the return and the partial restoration of the people's fortunes, he's not the gentle and faithful servant of this servant song, is he? I mean, he broke a few bruised reeds in his time. His foreign policy was not driven by this singular desire to bring the Torah, instruction of the Lord, to the nations. It was expedient for him to be opening up the floodgates for all religions and all peoples. What he did for Israel, he did for other nations too, and their gods. So what we've got here is a servant figure who, at least here, is both an idealized nation and an idealized Messiah King. Where the historical Israel and the historical Cyrus weren't quite able to fulfill. And of course, we know Jesus comes along. And it's like you put that final key in and it fits and it turns and the door opens. The spirit-anointed servant at whose baptism the voice from heaven declares his delight in him. 
The one who opens the scroll in Luke 4 and the synagogue and proclaims freedom for prisoners. The one whose earthly ministry literally opened up blind eyes and delivered from bondage those enslaved to Satan. The one in whose words and teaching the nations put their hope. The one who was friend to sinners and ever so gentle to the bruised and broken. The one who never, ever faltered from his task. He was faithful to the end, even to the point of sweating blood the night before his betrayal. And the one who would be lifted up on the cross and in that death would bring about God's new covenant for all people. And finally, the one who would be raised to life and will return in glory after he is gathered in all the nations and all the distant islands in order to consummate justice in a renewed creation. Jesus is all that servant Israel was meant to be and all that servant kings like David even, Hezekiah, Cyrus, were meant to be. So let's head to the last point. Let's apply this. Who is God? What's he doing? How's he doing it? God is the incomparable sovereign Lord who is bringing justice to all the earth through his chosen servant. And as we've seen, the servant is none other than Jesus Christ, our Lord. Through him, God establishes and will one day establish perfect justice over all the earth. And obviously, in him and through him and by his spirit, God's servant people are called to exercise and extend his justice through our words and works. Agreed? Yes. But here's where we hit some controversy. And some of you might know what I'm talking about. If you don't, let me just outline it for you. There's basically a debate, isn't there, going on um, about how the church today is to apply the idea of justice and what role that plays in evangelism and so on. Um, on the one side, I call it the right side, but I don't mean R-I-G-T-H, I mean W-R-I-G-T-H, G-H-T, you know what I mean. I'm Asian, I can't spell. Um, you can laugh at that. Um, uh, the right side, N.T. Wright, also Christopher Wright, um, that their view is that bringing justice or, or shalom is the church's task in evangelism and mission. Right? Gospel transformation in all spheres of life, social, economic, cities, all that kind of stuff, that is part and parcel, core to evangelism and mission. Now, the other side pushed back on that and basically say, well, no, that, that's oh, it's a bit of overreach, maybe a lot of overreach, exegetically, eschatologically. Um, evangelism and mission may have social justice implications, but at its core, it's about personal faith and repentance, Yeah. Yeah, you guys, some, some of you know that this is kind of going on in, in the background. Now, I, I'm not going to wade into that directly, but I do want to do something because I've noticed in the debate that there's a part of the Bible that completely, well, in my mind, as far as I read, have been neglected in the debate. It's in the New Testament, but I'm not talking about the book of Romans, which is often quoted in the debate. I'm talking about the pastoral epistles. Like, I haven't read much about how the pastorals relate to this debate. And I want to do that for a moment. So if you turn with me to the book of Titus, and we're going to finish there. Um, this is a little bit of an experiment, I think. And I, ho- and I hope you'll run with me for this one. Um, and I hope I'm not just flying a, a solo flag. But um, when we go to the pastorals, a book of Titus is, is an example. 
This is what we see. I'll tell you how it relates in a moment. Titus chapter 1, verse 5, Paul sets the agenda for his letter, right? He's writing to Titus, and he says this in chapter 1, verse 5, the reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. All right, what does that have to do with anything? Well, I want to suggest that what seems to be detailed instructions about church leadership and you might know later on about men and women, you know, Titus 2, older men, younger men, older women, younger women, later on slaves. I want to suggest that that's actually about mishpat. What do I mean? Well, the word justice or mishpat's not used, but I think the concept is there with that word, that phrase, put in order. What I'm suggesting is that gospel-ordered lives and households And churches is mishpat in microcosm. Now, there is a mention of social impact in Titus, but it's not what you normally think. It's chapter 3, verse 1. You want to look wider? It's rulers and authorities, but it's not about taking government positions. It's about submitting to rulers and authorities. But mostly, you get in Titus... Um, the constant refrain, 2.14, 3.8, again and again, at least those three times we hear this constant refrain, is about doing good. God's people must be about doing good, devoted to doing good, whenever you can, to whomever you can. All right? That's the social stuff. Now, all this is to say, if, if I can pull it together, whatever else we want to say about how Christ the servant brings mishpat through his people in the here and now, Whatever else you want to say, and there's a lot of good things you might want to say, whatever else, you must not neglect the way that it works out in the minutia of family life and church life and the daily grind of discipleship. The gospel of Jesus does a reordering, and it is arguably first and foremost in the church. And it starts in the individual lives of men and women and kids and families that we shepherd and disciple And then it overflows as God's reordered people do good in their neighborhoods, in their schools, in their universities and workplaces and societies and church planters and pastor leaders. My question for you is this. You may have a great plan for evangelistic growth, a great vision for your suburb or town or city, but... Have you left the details of Christian discipleship, what's often called the maturity ministry, have you left that to chance? Easy to, isn't it? Most church planters are great evangelists. Have you got a discipleship plan or pathway for that sort of reordering of lives? If you want to call it thick discipleship as opposed to thin discipleship. Have you thought about how young men and women will become actually become godly, mature men and women of God? And if so, who are their models and mentors going to be in that kind of Titus 2 sort of way? Do they exist? Where are you going to find them? Where are they going to find them? How are you going to disciple future leaders, not just in their gifts, but in their character? And who's asking them the difficult questions? How are husbands and wives, mums and dads, especially as they come to faith from completely non-Christian Backgrounds, how are they going to know what biblical families look like? 
I mean, who's teaching them and who's modeling that to them? Do they have models? Where are they going to get them from? How is your church going to be governed in a biblical, orderly, accountable way, driven not just by pragmatics, but by a desire to do thick discipleship? How are you going to tackle membership? Church? I mean, look, the list goes on, right? And I wonder... If this is the neglected element in both sides of this debate about mishpat, about justice, I want to suggest that gospel ministry is about justice and mishpat, but the New Testament focus is, especially in the pastorals, how it works out in the lives of God's people, in the home, in the church. Repentance and faith is a work of justice because it's about reordering to God's blueprint. Now from there... The call is to do as much good as you can to as many as you can before the Lord's return. And I think the traditional um, understanding of social justice, well, that happens in that space. And maybe this is a way to preserve both the, the, the centrality of the core gospel mission and the importance of justice as a part of that mission. Maybe. Just flying a kite. See what you think of that. But if I can finish just by addressing the difficulties of leadership I mentioned at the start. I want to ask the question, isn't that worth the hard grind of leadership and church planting? I mean, let this be honest. Leadership is hard precisely because of the daily grind of disciple making. And the more you're trying to do thick discipleship, the harder it is. I mean, if leadership is just about preaching sermons and speaking to conferences, well, it'd be a lot easier, wouldn't it? But isn't this true that the very place where it's hard, if I'm right, then it's the very center of where the mission is. See, God, the incomparable sovereign Lord of history, is through your disciple-making, applying the work of his servant Jesus to bring his justice mishpat into all the earth. Now, isn't that worth suffering for? Let's pray. Father God, give us hearts that are not just big enough to receive your word, hands that are ready and eager to do your work, minds clear, sober-minded, Help us ultimately to have a bigger vision of what Jesus is doing. And please use us in bringing his kind of justice mishpat into our world, starting with the churches that we are leading, the men and women that we are discipling, and the congregations that we might be planting. For his glory and his name's sake. Amen.